I love that hymn. I absolutely love it. But it's a challenge to sing that hymn. Because it'd be fair to say that sometimes, oftentimes, very many of us are guilty of merely paying lip service to Jesus and to this Christianity stuff. It's easy to come in here on a Sunday morning or evening and uh, sing the hymns and the songs and play the prayers and be with everybody else and uh, even engage a little bit with the scripture, but actually for it to mean diddly squat when we go home, when we get on with our lives during the week. The reality is, it is very easy to say one thing and do another and to just pay lip service to this whole thing. We as a nation are very, very guilty of this. We have a huge problem here in Wales in particular. Uh, I see it in England a little bit, uh, but I'm, I'm, it really tugs on my heartstrings when I think about one of the big problems we have here in Wales to do with cultural Christianity. It's, it's a real problem. And, uh, you know, I, I, people believe that they are Christians. Culture, their culture tells them they are. They have religious roots in their family. They come from a specific Christian tradition. But they're Christians really only, only in name. They don't practice a vibrant living faith. They, they give it lip service. They're not really into it. And then the other one that we really suffer from here in Wales too is that we are a nation of chapel goers. You know, uh, congregational Christians who know which chapel they don't go to as much as the one they do. They may have some connection to church, but they may even have a church that they count as theirs. They may even attend occasionally. But the danger is it's just all lip service. And they don't really have a real vibrant faith. And then, of course... Well, then there's the Christian, what I would say the convictional Christian. That final group's made up of those who actually live according to what they profess, who have met with Jesus. They have a personal relationship with him that has led to a fundamental change in their lives and in the whole outlook of their lives. It's no surprise at all, is it, that in those first two groups, we would say, oh yeah, we understand that, they're, they're just giving lip service. We'd expect that to be the case. But as the passage that we're going to study this evening shows, sadly, it's really easy for even the most committed Christian as well to fall into that trap of just paying lip service to Jesus. So regardless of which of the three groups you or I fall into, I do believe tonight's message is incredibly relevant to all of our lives. Now, this evening we're continuing our new series on short books, big message. Remember my intention is to try and visit with you some of the books of the Bible that seemingly get overlooked so easily. And uh, last week, we started where? Do you remember? Nahum. Well done. Top of the class. So Nahum. And this week, we're looking at the prophet Haggai. 
So if you want to start trying to find that in your Bible, that would be a good move. While you're doing that, let me just say uh, a few things. It's, uh, if you're still struggling, it's right before Zechariah and Malachi, okay? You get the Matthew, you've definitely gone too far, okay? Now, you'll know, possibly, that Haggai is a very short book. It's uh, the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, there's one that's shorter. Anybody tell me which one that is? In the Old Testament, which book is shorter than Haggai? Obadiah, Obadiah, Obadiah. Yeah, yeah. That's the way I remember it anyway. So Obadiah, we'll try and visit Obadiah maybe uh, one week. We'll uh, have a think about that. But tonight, Haggai. Haggai's message was given to people that I think are much like most of us. Those who acknowledge that God, yeah, 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 God is the first priority in our lives. But in all honesty, we often struggle to make that more than just lip service. So before we read this uh, chapter of that book, and Heather will come in a moment to read it for us, let me do what I did last week and just try and give you a little bit of the historical background to this amazing little book. This book that very often when you turn the pages in your Bible, sticks to the next page and you forget it's there. I wonder, for instance, when's the last time you heard a message from the book of Haggai. For some of you here tonight, you may well be thinking, I didn't even know there was a book called Haggai, so just move on, will you? Okay. Much of the historical content that you want to look at when it comes to studying a book like Haggai is found in the early chapters of the book of Ezra. So that's a bit of homework for you. If you want to do a bit of extra work, go home and read those chapters. After roughly 70 years in exile in Babylon, a group of about 42,000 Jews, accompanied by about 7,000 servants, decided to make the perilous journey back from exile in Babylon to Judah. Now, this was in about 536 B.D., they, uh, they, uh, BC. They were being led by a guy uh, who had a fascinating name of Zerubbabel. That's a great name, isn't it? Another one of those occasions when I would love to be an Anglican minister and to ask, what name do you give to this guy? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel Owen. Can you imagine that? I would definitely go by the nickname Bubs, but there we go. So these people had been in exile. Years had passed. A new generation had been born, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But these people decide they might as well go back to Judah. They've been in exile for 70 years. They've got nothing to lose. They're not being necessarily held captive. They've settled. And as I said, a new generation's been born. Life has become normalized. But this group decide, we are going to return. And when they return, we see that they quickly rebuild the altar and they begin offering sacrifices to God. So religion is at the heart of why they've returned. That's been a fundamental thing. They want to get back and do what their ancestors did. Within two years, we know that they laid a foundation 
to rebuild the temple. So they rang up Dur Cymru, and they came and fitted the sewage system. And, uh, you know, Western Power came and set up the electricity, and they phoned British Gas and got an appointment for a connection. Virgin were there, laying cables for, you know, then digging up our road all week. Everything was set. The footings were in. They were ready to rebuild, ready to go for it. And uh, their Samaritan neighbors offered to help with the rebuilding. Now, if you know your Bible history and context and culture a little bit, it might not surprise you to learn, what do you think the Jews did when the Samaritans offered help? They said no. Well put, Mary. You're doing well. This is good. Still awake. Hallelujah. So they politely refused. Now, the Samaritans were a bit miffed at this. So they went and had a word with the Persian government, and it put uh, pressure on everybody. The result was building stopped. Now, if ever you've been abroad, you may have visited countries where sometimes you see foundations and nothing else, or you see quarter-built walls and nothing else. And uh, I remember visiting Spain many years ago, and certainly that was something I came across again and again. I don't know whether George and Jane remember that from their time there, but, you know, people would just build to a certain level, and that was it. Well, this is the way it was here. They started well, but didn't proceed. And it was 14 years later now. 14 years had passed. They were in a routine they got to, used to life without the temple or anything like that, and God's had enough. And so he sends two prophets to proclaim a message to this group. Now, they were a faithful group, remember? They'd returned, 42,000 of them, with 7,000 servants. They arrived, they started sacrificing, they laid the foundations of the temple, worship was happening, but 14 years have now elapsed. Nothing. And enter Haggai, and two months later, Zechariah. And that's where these books fit into the history of the Old Testament. The book of Haggai is a fairly simple book. It consists of four messages that are precisely dated. Check this out for yourselves. It's over a four-month period, the latter half of 520 BC. And we're going to look at the first of those messages tonight. And Heather's going to come and she's going to read for us from Haggai chapter 1. Thank you, Heather. Yes. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. The command to build God's house. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. <coughs> you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earn, earns wages earns money to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Thank you so much, Heather. I think this is, I mean, particularly when you have it read so well like that, you got the gist of it, didn't you? You got the gist of what is going on there and what the meaning of that uh, passage actually is. If you're going to summarize uh, this uh, chapter, it would be this. Putting first things first requires life service, not just lip service. That's it. God has a go at the people for just giving lip service to him. As I pointed out earlier, it's easy to assume that if we fail to put first things first, then we're in danger of being little more than cultural Christians or congregational Christians, chapel goers. But it's interesting, isn't it? Here in Haggai, God isn't speaking to cultural believers. He's not speaking even to congregational believers. He's actually speaking to a bunch who are deeply committed these are probably the most committed of God's people at that time. Think about it. 
unlike their fellow Jews who'd chosen to stay in Babylon, where things had become rather familiar and comfortable, this group of, what, about 50,000 people, we reckon, made that incredibly courageous decision to go back to Jerusalem. And when they got there, we, we, we understand, they didn't just settle down straight away. No, no, they began to rebuild. And it's fair to say that almost all of them had either been very young when they went to Babylon or maybe had been born there. Their entire lives really were molded by that place, a foreign place. The culture, the traditions, the practices, the people of Babylon surely would have taken their toll. We know that it was a difficult time. We read in the Psalms that famous song that Boney M made uh, fashionable. Do you remember? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? By the rivers of Babylon. No, no. These people were deeply committed. Deeply committed to God, to his purposes. And they came back. It motivated them to return to the land that God had given them and reestablish themselves. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And then... And then, and we can totally identify with this, can't we? I know I can. After a pretty good start, they lost their enthusiasm and became so busy with the everyday tasks of just living life. And whilst they might have said, oh yes, God's our priority, their lives, after 14 years, certainly didn't reflect that. They might have believed it up here, intellectually, they might have really believed that God was, was number one. God was very important to them. But the idea wasn't now being reflected in the way they were living at all. And if we're not careful, might I suggest, we're all prone to do the same thing. So what does this chapter teach us about how to turn lip service into life service? What can we see here? What lessons can we draw from this chapter? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is this. If we're going to put God first and move from lip service to life service, we need to stop making excuses. Are you good at making excuses? When you don't want to do something? You're sitting there all smug this evening, all of you. I bet you are. I bet you've told some corkers in your time. Excuses not to do this, that, or the other. Somebody once said, didn't they? He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Well, that's what God is saying here. Go back to the passage. If you've got your Bible open or your Bible app open on your phone or whatever, look at it again. Look at verse 2. God's first charge against the people is that they were saying, well, it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. How much blinking time do they want? These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, obviously, God's presence has never nor will ever be limited to a physical place like a temple. But God had been with these people, hadn't he? He'd been as present with them 
in exile as he had before they went into exile. He was with them now. But we do know that the temple was important. It was key in the worship of the Jews. It was the place that God had appointed for them to gather for worship. It was the place where they could offer sacrifices. It was key. It was crucial. So I wonder, why hadn't they gotten on with it? If you'd asked the people about, well, why, why isn't the temple rebuilt? It's, it's so important to you. 14, 15, 16 years have passed. Oh, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all for rebuilding the temple, why can't we? Yes, it's a great cause. Thing is, but it's not quite the right time. We're in a bit of a recession, see? It's difficult at the moment. Pressure's on the family. Brexit's coming, not sure what we're going to do. Once the economy turns around, we'll rebuild. Well, they might not have had Brexit to cope with, but I can imagine that's the sort of thing they would have said. Now, today, God's not into building temples. He's after building our lives. They are temples for the Holy Spirit. And we have this precious treasure within, as we were reminded this morning, by Pastor Hans. God's into doing that. Peter describes the idea like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Today, putting God first when it comes to building God's house means making my life a fitting place for God to dwell and devoting my life to building others up so that the same is true in their lives. Unfortunately, though, the excuses we come up with don't sound a whole lot different than the ones in this passage. Oh, yeah, we would, but, you know, we've got this extension being built on the house at the moment. Don't really have time to to read the Bible and gather the family around for prayer or whatever. Oh, I, I know, yeah, I know we should be attending church more consistently right now, but, you know, the kids are right in the middle of their sports season. It's the only morning we, we have together. I'm working a lot of hours right now, but somebody's got to make the mortgage payments. You know, they won't do it by themselves. Just as soon as we pay off some of that, we'll, we'll spend more time. There's an infinite number of excuses that we can come up with to push God and his purposes, his plans and his ways to the margins. And the danger is then you're just giving lip service to God. Nothing else. Just lip service. So we need to stop making excuses. The second thing we see here, I think, is that we need to, well, stop being selfish. If you look at verse 4 in your Bibles, you'll see that these people were basically selfish. Is it a time for you, asks the Lord, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? 
Now, they had plenty of money and time to devote to their own houses, but yeah, the temple lay in ruins. Now, before we go any further, let me just make this point very, very clear. God isn't against people being wealthy. It's okay to have money. It's okay to have a nice house. It's okay. Please hear that. The question is how you use it all. The question is what's going on in here with regards to all of that. It's a question of the heart. People here are spending the very best of their time, their talent and their treasure on their own houses. Give two hoots about what's happening to the Lord's house. They're looking after their own selfish interests. In verse 5, it's interesting, isn't it? God tells the people to consider the results of their selfishness. Give careful thought to your ways. Now that literally means in the Hebrew, you need to weigh your heart. Again, it points to the issue, isn't it? It's a problem of the heart. Weigh your heart on this. God's so anxious about this situation that he repeats exactly the same thing in verse 7. Do you see it there in your Bible? Be careful. Give careful thought to your ways. You see, these people had become settled. They'd become used to doing things their own way and for their own ends, following their own very selfish desires. And the consequences or results of that, interestingly enough, are certainly not what they hoped for. Do you see that? They sowed plenty of seed, but there'd been droughts. See that in the text? The harvest didn't yield as much as they hoped for. That meant that they had even less seed to sow the following year. Inflation seemed to have gobbled up what they earned. So I love that little phrase there. It was like putting money uh, into a bag with holes. That's a lovely description. At the end of the month, they had nothing left. Nothing to give towards the fund for building the temple. Now, God not only understood all of that, he pulls the curtain back and reveals he's the orchestrator of a lot of what's been going on. We see in verses 10 and 11 that God himself had brought the droughts in order to keep these people aware of what was going on. They weren't putting him first. People kept working harder and harder, and the truth is they were getting further behind. Now, we'd never do anything like that, would we? Never. No. We'd never work more and more hours, only to see our bank accounts dwindle even more. Have you always found that? doesn't matter what pay rise you have, you always live up to your means. We'd never spend all our waking moments thinking and planning our next holiday, would we? No. Buying a nice new car or a modeling, remodeling project on the house or whatever. No. Maybe, maybe we need to check ourselves from time to time to make sure we're not becoming too selfish. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, well, how are we spending our time? What do you do for leisure and relaxation? How much of your time does God get? How do you spend your money? If you still use a checkbook 
I wonder what I'd see written on the stubs if you dared show me. Or your credit card bill. Am I generous with others? Or do I tend to spend everything on myself? What about my aspirations, my goals for life? Are they all about me? Me, myself, and I? Hey, this is the way we're going. Does God feature in it? Does God's purpose, God's plan? What about if we stopped now and again and asked ourselves, what was the main focus? What do we think about most? If you're on Facebook, if you like Instagram or Snapchat or WhatsApp or other social media, the best way to answer what you think about most is probably to look at your posts. The danger is, and it's a very real danger, isn't it, especially in this 21st century, that we just pay lip service to all of this Christianity stuff. It doesn't affect the way we live at all. We need to stop making excuses. We need to stop being selfish. And the third thing, do you notice this in the text? We need to fear God. That's what we need to do. Now, in a moment, we'll go back to the first part of verse 12 and see that the people immediately responded to Haggai's message. They were obedient to God like that. They really were. But first, I want you to focus on the last part of verse 12 and see why they responded so positively. Do you look at verse 12? Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet of Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. Full stop. And then it says this, and the people feared the Lord. Wow. Fearing God is one of those ideas that's very hard to describe. I've said to you before, I grew up in a church where the pastor was six foot above criticism wore a dark suit every Sunday, leant over the pulpit, and made you lot feel like miserable sinners. Because you're doomed. You'll be lucky to get out of here, let alone get to hell. You know? God's got a big book, and he's got your name in it. And if you so much as drop a chewing gum wrapper, you'll pay. That's the sort of church I grew up in. I never heard anything about the love of God or his grace or what Jesus Christ had done for me on the cross. Fearing God. That's what I grew up with. Scared stiff of him. And then there was the Holy Ghost on top of that. What's all that about? No wonder I was scared. But fearing God, I, I think it's, it's so misunderstood. Maybe that's a whole new series, but such a multifaceted thing. One aspect of fearing God is really about having a sense of awe. Awe. A-W-E. Awe. A sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. Keeps us from approaching God flippantly. You know, I'm sure you've had this in your own walk with Christ. There are times when I need to know that you know, God's, God's there for me and he loves me and he's holding me and he's giving me a cutch. And oh, lovely, thank you so much. But there are other times 
when I have fallen to my knees in awe of God's majesty and glory and splendor and mercy and grace. That's what it means, the sense of to fear the Lord has that sense that you are overwhelmed by an understanding of who he is. Well, it's certainly been lacking among the remnant of Jews there in Jerusalem. It's one reason why they neglected the rebuilding of the temple. It's like, you know, that... I'd say, does God ever take your breath away? Oh, that's what it is to fear the Lord. The other aspect of fearing the Lord, of course, one which I think we tend to dismiss a bit too easily sometimes, is the fear of God's judgment for our rebellion against him. Well, in my opinion, it's a healthy fear, you know. It leads us as sinful people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. When I understood the reality of hell, I ran to God. When I understood the judgment that was coming, I wanted to give my life to Jesus. You bet your bottom dollar I did. Of course I did. Now, I know now, my sins have been paid for in full. We no longer need to fear the judgment of God on our sins if we're born again. Let me get an amen for that, because that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Okay. But we still ought to have what Martin Luther called filial fear. We don't. Filial fear is that sense of, I don't want to get on the wrong side of God. And I don't. I don't want to offend him. I want to watch my life closely. I want to say the right things to people. I muck up all the time. I don't always get it right. You can identify with that. But I have this filial fear. And that stops me sometimes. It does stop me. Hallelujah. It stops me from some sense. Because I know if I go and do that, it's against God's purposes. The remnant that Haggai is addressing here had lost sight of so much. We need to stop making excuses. We need to stop being so selfish. We need to fear God. And the fourth thing I think we need to do is obey. We see that at the beginning of verse 12. I mean, they just get on with it, don't they? They hear from Haggai the prophet, oh, but every time I preach the sermon... And God spoke through me, because he does now and again. Um, everybody just went, oh, right, okay. And we all did it. Wow. Hey? What a party time that would be, eh? You'd have fun. Or somebody else spoke. You know, Pastor Hans came with us this morning, and he spoke. What if, you know, that just, bang, landed, and we were just like, yep, yeah, sure, okay, that's it, we'll do it. It'd be amazing. Uh, but we're blinking human beings. Life's not easy. Not always easy to obey. But I love how the people responded to the message that Haggai spoke to them. Beginning with Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, the people, they all obeyed God. They did it straight away. They didn't argue with God. They didn't try to cut a deal or make excuses. They didn't procrastinate. They obeyed. That's what it says in the text. They didn't even call it a blinking meeting. They just got on with it. 
That's in essence what it means to turn lip service into life service, isn't it? See, I can say until I'm blue in the face, oh, I'm not making excuses. I can say, oh, I'm not selfish, what you're talking about. I can say, yeah, yeah, I, oh, yes, I fear God. But unless my actions are consistent with my words, then all I've done, just give lip service to it. You know, every time we open our Bibles, every time that we hear a sermon, every time that we take part in a Bible study, there's a very real possibility that God is going to confront or challenge some aspect of the way we're living our lives. I teach a preaching course at one of the Baptist colleges, and one of the things I say to young preachers is this. I fundamentally believe that preaching is a God event. I expect God to do something when I preach. I'm not here for the benefit of my health. I expect this to be an event when God decides to do something. So don't be surprised if as we've gone through this sermon this evening, you felt a little bit guilty about something. Or maybe God's nagging you and there's something right now in the back of your mind and you're trying to suppress it. I believe that every time we open God's word, hear a sermon, listen to something, read a Christian book or whatever, God wants to confront and challenge aspects of the way that we're living our lives. I certainly find that in my own life. My guess is that if you're listening carefully right now and your heart is open to hearing from God, God's probably already confronted or challenged something in your life tonight. But when that happens, you have a choice to make. You can either tell it to go away, make excuses, ignore it, put it off, miss out on the blessing that naturally comes with obedience, or obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. The hymn writer got it right. And we see how God responds to obedience. I love this. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 13. This is awesome. God's response to the obedience of the people is this. I am with you. Wow. I am with you. If we are obedient to God, he says, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't you want to know that God's with you? Whatever you're facing, whatever's going on, whatever nonsense you're having to deal with, whatever it is that's taking up so much of your time and your energy, don't you just want to know that the God of heaven is with you? We need to stop making excuses. We need to stop being selfish. We need to obey him. We need to fear him. And fifthly and finally, we need to get up off our backsides and work. We need to do something. We can't just pay lip service to all of this. We've got to do something. We've got to work. It ties in, I know, very closely with the idea of obedience, but I thought it was very important to discuss this issue separately. Because you notice how the chapter finishes? If you look at your Bible or you remember what Heather read for us, they begin work on the temple. It's a little over three weeks since Haggai spoke God's message but they've been down to Travis Perkins. They've had a word with other local builders, and they've started. Terry Howells has been rung up 
They've brought the stuff around, the chippings have arrived, and the walls are starting. Now you see this idea of work coming up again. If you look on into chapter 2, God actually commands the people to work. Now the Apostle Paul reminds us that like any other relationship, you can put God first, but you've got to work. And you've got to work to put God first. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Now, notice that Paul's very careful to point out, you know, God will do his work in us. He, he gives us the desire and the ability to develop our relationship with him. But we have a responsibility as well. We've got to remember that. Now there are some things that the relatively little group that had returned to Jerusalem had to do themselves. God could have rebuilt that blinking temple without a need for a single human being being involved. But no, he wanted them to do it. He chose to do it that way. He got on with it. The same is true for us. We're going to grow in our relationship with God. There's work for us to do. He won't read your Bible for you. God won't pray for you. God won't give an offering for you. God won't lead a Sunday school class or take your shift as a welcomer on a Sunday morning or serve coffee on a Sunday evening. God won't reach out to your neighbor in the name of Jesus for you. You've got to be prepared to do it. I've got to be prepared to do it. We have to choose to do these things. And praise God, he'll give us the motivation and the ability. But he won't do them for us. Now we can go away from here tonight, my friends. Having said, oh, that's a nice little study on the cha first chapter of Haggai. But that's the last thing I want. I think there's a very real challenge to all of us here tonight. Please, I'm speaking more to myself probably than I am to you. To stop doing so much of this and to start using this. To stop just giving lip service to all. If this stuff matters, it's going to show. And there's a few things that have to change. Certainly in me. And I very much guess it will be true for you as well. So let's bring all of this together and we're just going to take a moment in quietness. And I'm going to allow you in the quietness of your own heart. If God has spoken to you this evening, I want to urge you, please, make your confession with Christ. Take a moment to respond to him. Take a moment to ask for his forgiveness. Ask him to lead you and to guide you. And maybe in these moments you will again be awestruck by the majesty of God who longs to work in your life. Let's bow our heads as we respond together.